Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I discuss the proxy war in Ukraine, the deep seeds of the altercation, NATO expansion, nuclear war, and the prospects of continued human existence in the nuclear era. I finish with a plea for peace and diplomacy, which I hope will be spearheaded by the United States and sooner rather than later. Hope you enjoy the show. Again, this is Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. unceremoniously back in February of 2014, with political upheaval in Ukraine, followed by Russian annexation of the Crimea, giving Russia access to a very strategic and important warm water port, supported by pro-Russian forces and separatist militias. This international conflict was escalated in February of 2022, with a Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which continues to the present And this proxy war teeters on the brink of world war and possibly nuclear annihilation, which could eventually put an end to the human race and appears to have no end in sight. So to quote George Orwell, peace is war. And the war has been very popular for the U.S. ruling class, especially to the private for-profit weapons and defense contractors, which continue to profiteer from the conflict. And the U.S. has also been stalling any peace talks or talks of diplomacy because the war in Ukraine serves as a strategic purpose, a means to an end. It provides the U.S. a very valuable opportunity to weaken one of its chief political and military enemies at very little cost, a fraction of the out-of-control bloated Pentagon budget. Of course it's not free, and the U.S. has been sending tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine, thanks to the taxpayers, all to finance this proxy war. Every time I try to find a reliable figure, it's always more than the last. It's probably close to $100 billion by now, maybe even more, and who really knows? That's just the money we're told about. I can only imagine what the grand total for this proxy war might be, all while poor and working class people are struggling and means tested for the meager welfare provisions available. And the Pentagon failed its fifth audit in a row, following an internal investigation as of November 22 of 2022, being unable to account for 61% of its funds of the $3.5 trillion in total assets, hundreds of billions of dollars, sometimes even trillions, all missing every single year. And who could forget about the time when Donald Rumsfeld called a press conference way back in September of 2001 to report $2.3 trillion that had went missing. The Pentagon is kind of like a bottomless pit where mountains of money just goes missing. All vanishes, mysteriously. Where does all go? Your guess is as good as mine, but I do have some ideas. For starters, the Pentagon is just a funnel of taxpayer money to private high-tech industry, all under the guise of defense. Because the people aren't going to finance big business, weapons dealers, defense contractors, aeronautics, computers, surveillance, or the militarization of space willingly. 
So the U.S. people have to be driven to do so, persuaded, and the ruling class use fear to manipulate the American taxpayers. Their consent is simply manufactured. A boogeyman has to be created, and global politics has to be simplified, with the general population told some fairy tale about good guys and bad guys. To quote H.L. Mencken, the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed by an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. There always has to be some enemy. At first it was the Russians. Then communism. Then global communism. Then the global conspiracy of communism. Or even better yet, the international terrorist plot carried out by communists. All taking their orders from Russia or China or wherever. It doesn't matter. In the United States, there has been one red scare after another. The U.S. is a very scared and paranoid society, and the ruling class uses it to its advantage. But even following the fall of communism and after the Soviet Union collapsed, did that stop the United States' imperial agenda? Did it demobilize its military with a budget that dwarfs every other comparable country and is now nearly equal to the military budget of the rest of the world combined? Of course not. The military-industrial complex never even missed a beat, even if its favorite boogeyman is no longer a threat. In fact, after the Soviet Union's collapse, the first Bush president actually ordered the invasion of Panama, and that's because the Soviet Union was no longer a military deterrent. So the U.S. had a freer hand to carry out terrorism and military aggression abroad, all with imperial ambitions and an economic agenda. Never for reasons of morality or with the goals of spreading democracy or whatever lies, fairy tales, and feel-good stories that the mainstream media tries to sell us regarding U.S. foreign policy and the use of force. The United States is not a city on the hill. It's not unique in history. And I think the entire construction of the nation-state is illegitimate. And the U.S. is basically just carrying out its imperial ambitions, just like all the other empires and nations with delusions of grandeur that came before it. Starting with a war of independence, the United States began as a nascent empire, and shortly thereafter, it knocked off Britain at the pinnacle of the global hegemony, and in the centuries that followed, it began to absorb the old imperial empire of Britain, and the U.S. would later go on to become the richest, most powerful, and violent superpower that the world has ever seen. By the time the fighting had stopped and World War II had ended, the U.S. had become the most powerful country in world history, possessing about half the world's wealth with only a tiny fraction of the world's population. The U.S. was also left unharmed following World War II, with most of the fighting being fought in Europe, Japan, and some in the Pacific. The U.S. taxpayers also fit the bill for the European reconstruction and rebuilding effort. And while modest reformist New Deal policies helped stimulate the U.S. economy, it was World War II that pulled it out of the Great Depression. Factories in Pittsburgh and Detroit kept booming long after the last battle of the war, and U.S. ports continued to pump Europe and the rest of the world with U.S. goods for decades to come. Fast forward to modern times, U.S. manufacturing has stalled out, and the Rust Belt has taken over cities from Baltimore, Buffalo, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Detroit. As U.S. manufacturing unemployment is now at or above Depression-era levels. I'd like to now be critical of the New Deal, which was very progressive at the time, but its biggest shortcoming was it didn't go far enough, which is why World War II and forced reindustrialization of the United States was necessary to pull it out of the Great Depression, and is also why massive social engineering projects continued in the U.S. long after the war ended, including Eisenhower's Highway Network, which was built all under the guise of defense. The U.S. was in a very unique position in world history following the war, 
and U.S. planners knew it. Europe and Japan were decimated following World War II, which gave U.S. manufacturing a huge advantage. America became the center of global manufacturing for the decades to come, all during the period following World War II until about 1980, which is sometimes called the golden era of capitalism, at least until the Reagan and Thatcher reforms took hold. These new measures deregulated the entire global financial system and dissolved the Bretton Woods banking system. Prior to, about 95% of investment was tied directly to production, with only about 5% going to speculation. But today, it's almost the complete opposite, with about 95% of capital flows going to speculation, so greedy bankers can manipulate the global financial system, betting against foreign currencies and international growth rates, playing magic tricks with money, trying to turn it into huge boatloads of cash. These massive financial firms, which now make up nearly 10% of GDP, try to profit on tiny percentage points of the billions of financial transactions that occur every day in the global market. Some of the turnaround times on these investments are weeks, days, and even seconds. And these predatory financial institutions contribute almost nothing to production or the real economy. In fact, they probably even harm the economy. During the post-war period, which is often called, again, the golden age of capitalism, there were almost no recessions. But as financial deregulation continues up until the present, there's now about a recession every seven years, with the next always worse than the last. Today, there's more than $21 trillion in dark, untraceable money surely hoarded by the rich and powerful, taking it out of circulation, offshoring it to evade taxes, and putting it into shell companies in Panama and the Virgin Islands, among other tax havens around the globe. And this ocean of dirty money was revealed by the Panama Papers and the Pandora Papers, thanks to some outstanding and courageous investigative journalism. And with financial deregulation, these financial firms have grown exceedingly powerful in the last few decades, with a handful of asset management companies and investment houses controlling the bulk of the world economy. And this concentration of wealth and power is on an enormous scale. So firms like BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard control tens of trillions of dollars in investment and have influence over our everyday lives. And these financial institutions, which are enormous, are broad in scope and diversified in scale and are completely unaccountable to the public, with decisions being made in secret boardrooms with executives, directors, and committee members, all handpicked to advance an elite agenda, speaking on behalf of concentrated wealth and power. And all within the network of global dark money includes high-profile figures in government, media, business, and banking. Even mentioned in those leaks include a Western darling and sympathetic figure, Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine and pitchman for the Western military-industrial complex. And while Ukraine is clearly the victim of Russian aggression, as Putin committed the most serious war crime, aggression, at least according to the Nuremberg Tribunal, it's also worth mentioning that before the Russian invasion, Ukraine was widely considered to be one of the most corrupt countries in Europe. According to many mainstream news agencies, watchdogs, and organizations like Transparency International, where Ukraine scored a 33 out of 100 on the Corruption Perceptions Index, ranking near the bottom half of the list and coming in at 117th out of 180 countries, with only Russia ranking lower in the region. The bottom of the list is typically occupied by countries with long-lasting, unstable political situations and governments offering very limited transparency. Zelensky, in his inauguration speech in 2017, with some blatant irony, said that the people of Ukraine were tired of politicians taking every possible opportunity to steal, bribe, and loot. 
Of course, widespread systemic corruption can be tough to tackle. It's a long-term problem and not an easy fix. And the seeds for the current Ukrainian corruption date back to their inclusion in the old Soviet Union. And the legacy of the Soviet Union plays an important role on Ukrainian politics today. Of course, in the old Soviet Union, everyone had equal rights, but some people were a little more equal than others. This is a not-so-subtle jab at the commissar class. Even today, bribes and gifts are commonplace in Ukraine. And the people must sometimes resort to bribing officials to get better access to public services like education and health care. Ukraine has been working with the OECD since 2014 to reduce corruption, as well as the Corruption Prevention Agency and the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, which, I mean, just sounds like propaganda to me. These organizations almost have to have uh, a river of dirty money running through them. They've got to be a front for something, right? I just can't prove it. But uh, anyways, moving on. Since 2014, Ukraine has been moving closer to the European Union. In fact, following the Russian invasion in 2022, Ukraine even applied for membership in the EU. And since the war began, all official economic connections between Russia and Ukraine have been partially or completely severed. And now, again, going back to 2014, in February, specifically, where a coup d'etat took place, which was backed by the U.S., and which was well before the Western mainstream media fell in love with the one-sided anti-Russian political narrative, which was aided by typical airbrushing and historical engineering by a highly subservient intellectual class and culture and media. In fact, the decision by Russia to reintegrate Crimea and eastern sections of the country with very pro-Russian sentiments was not without provocation. It was instead a Russian reaction to the U.S.-led coup, where an armed mob led by neo-Nazis and a right-wing militia stormed the Ukrainian parliament, enforcing out the president and other party members, immediately making them vacate the building. The coup was later exposed in leaked audio from the assistant secretary of state and, and U.S. ambassador. The Western hand-picked puppet government of Ukraine, including the prime minister and president, were soon mired in a corruption scandal. The prime minister was later forced to resign after being named in the Panama Papers, which uncovered a sophisticated high-level corruption scheme, which included tax evasion and oceans of dirty money, exposing how rich and powerful people avoid taxes. As fighting continues and political unrest remains in Ukraine, U.S. and neo-Nazi ties run deep with their military and security forces. The U.S. and NATO's interest in Ukraine does not in any way appear to resolve any regional disputes. NATO is a hostile military alliance led by the U.S. and their imperial agenda. And the U.S.-led coup put Russia in a very difficult position, because if Russia did not act, it seemed pretty evident that Ukraine would be integrated into the European Union, potentially creating a scenario where enemy states would have Russia surrounded on all fronts, and a hostile military alliance flanking all of its borders, creating a very precarious situation for Russia and its people. In 2008, NATO forces threatened to advance right up to the Russian border, putting Russian people and the rest of the global population under threat of nuclear apocalypse. Almost leaving Russia with no choice other than an outright military invasion of Ukraine, which is what inevitably happened, carrying with it a proxy war with the world's most prominent superpower, and thus with it the most dangerous and destructive military the history of the world has ever seen, creating the potential of a long-term and possibly never-ending war with the United States. The Russian invasion of Ukraine carried with it significant consequences, 
like exclusion from the world economic and banking system. And it also eliminated opportunities for trade, as European countries like Germany and countries like the U.S. now placed Russian goods under embargo. And of course, economic sanctions are tired and played out. And frankly, they never even seem to work or achieve their desired ends. In fact, I think they even make dictators and autocrats and other tyrannical governments like Russia and Putin, even more powerful because they increase poverty and desperation amongst the population, often making the people even more dependent on the oligarchs and the establishment within that specifically targeted society, creating an unmissable opportunity for propaganda for the ruling elites, allowing autocrats to scapegoat and direct the people's anger, galvanizing the domestic population, and empowering tyrants like Putin to whip up the population in a jingoist, nationalist hysteria. And of course, the United States, with its long, dark track record and imperial agenda, is always an easy target. Intellectuals, cultural managers, and the ruling class, regardless of country, are unprincipled. For starters, all governments around the world are classist, racist, tyrannical, and run by criminals, which commit human rights abuses against the domestic population and would probably invade other countries in acts of aggression if the leaders knew they could win. In turn, expanding their power and increasing economic prosperity for a tiny segment of the population. The domestic power centers within capitalist society control businesses, media, information systems, and the flow of money, and they also run the government. Nation-states are centers of power. They are not humanitarian institutions. And the state also exercises a monopoly on violence. The state is usually governed by criminals, and in an act of nepotism and cronyism, the legislators legalize schemes and rackets that allow the ruling class to bilk workers and the poor for profit and class warfare. In a capitalist society, corporations are the primary vehicle used to rob, steal, and plunder from the domestic population, and, as in the case of transnationals, loot the world at large. Throughout the last few decades, neoliberalism has paved the way for a very specific form of globalization. So what's called capitalism is now the dominant socioeconomic and political system, and capitalist ideology and theology is garnering increased popularity throughout the world at large. And what's called neoliberalism is not new nor liberal, and what it amounts to is class warfare. So all the rhetoric about free markets and personal responsibility and the minimization of the state is just that. So there's free markets for poor people, but rich people get protections in the form of socialism, and businesses get corporate welfare, subsidies, and the public also fits the bill for research and development for many of the top corporations in the world. There's also assurances that the repressive elements of the state must remain. So there's always more money for guns, tanks, jets, attack helicopters, bombs, and munitions. And still more money for police and surveillance technology that continues to grow in parallel along with the corporate state nexus and its close connections to Silicon Valley. And yet still more money for more bars, jails, prisons, prison guards, and subsidies to the private industrial prison complex. And there's a reason for this. There must be a place to put the superfluous population that don't contribute to the economic system. And with the welfare state crumbling, those people are then put in jail instead. Private prisons can also use their power and influence to sue local and state governments 
and even threaten to close if certain occupancy rates aren't met. And this pressure can trickle down to the level of judges and law enforcement, compromising whatever integrity is left in the American injustice system. Part of the goal of the drug war was also to make it a race war and a class war by locking up a disproportionate number of black males, even though drug use doesn't vary much between races. And also, drug use, or the desired drug, sometimes changes along class lines, and that can influence policy and enforcement. The U.S. is a prison state, leading the world in mass incarceration. The U.S. has the largest prison population in the world, and it also has the highest incarceration rate, and by a big margin. And so while the repressive and violent elements of the state are built up, the welfare apparatus is being dismantled, and it has been for decades. So whatever skeleton remains of the welfare system, it's barely hanging on, and it's also constantly under attack by both the right and the so-called left. That's what's called neoliberalism, or the Washington Consensus. So as the welfare state continues to spiral into oblivion in America, the jail system can't even keep up with the flow of prisoners and the mass incarceration, because there needs to be a place to put the superfluous, the homeless, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the poor, the unemployed, the subversives, the dissidents, the social disruptions, and everyone else labeled as a problem to society. Basically those who don't contribute to production or to the capitalist machine, and also those without a disposable income, unable to afford useless gadgets and luxury goods, especially with the U.S. healthcare system being a national scandal and with mental health being virtually non-existent in this country. So the way the ruling class decides to deal with the most vulnerable members of society is to just toss them in prison and forget about them. The main agenda behind the Jim Crow South was to criminalize black life. So instead of treating blacks as equals, it was much easier to just lock them away on bogus charges or even worse. Again, the U.S. is a prison state and mass incarceration has exploded. So in 1980, the number of incarcerated was around 500,000. Today, that number exceeds 2 million. The 80s was also the decade of Reagan, when the neoliberal reforms began to take effect and when the banking system was deregulated and dismantled. This was also the same era of the buildup of the neo-Nazi Latin American terror states with U.S. connections, flooded with dirty money, narco-trafficking, and an arms racket. And speaking of the drug war, now might be a good time to mention Gary Webb, who revealed the South American terror connection to the crack cocaine epidemic that spread across the United States. In his Dark Alliance series, which first appeared in the San Jose Mercury News starting in 1996, Mr. Webb discovered a drug racket carried out by the CIA, which was importing high-grade and cheap cocaine from South America, allowing gang members, including the Crips and the Bloods, to distribute it throughout the streets in L.A. The CIA then used the money from the drug racket to traffic arms to the Nicaraguan Contras, helping them overthrow the slightly progressive government of Nicaragua at the time. They then used the cloud of communism to justify what they were doing, and they used the communist conspiracy to justify terrorism and violence throughout the world that they were conducting over the entire duration of the Cold War. And of course, many of the drug kingpins that were involved in the ring received amnesty and were never prosecuted for their role. The seeds of the Cold War run deep, and it basically began when the fighting finally stopped during World War II. And from a U.S. planner's perspective, the Cold War was about, I think at least, returning Russia and Eastern Europe back to its historical service role of Western Europe and to a modern extent, the United States. So basically the same service role Russia had prior to the Russian Revolution and before both world wars. 
However, the way I see it, the Russian Revolution was little more than a right-wing coup d'etat as the Bolsheviks seized power to overthrow the established order, the Tsar, all in the name of Marxism and Socialism, which were both very popular at the time and still remain so with much of the working class and the leftist intellectuals around the world. However, this was the seeds to totalitarianism, and the system that was put in place of the old Tsarist rule was much more harsh and even more violent than the old guard. Marx opposed the Tsar and capitalism. I think he would also oppose the modern capitalist rule, which is a system run by the capitalist ownership class made up of bankers, shareholders, real estate moguls, corporate executives, and billionaires that dominate every facet of modern American society and society at large throughout the rest of the world. Of course, Marx had talked about a dictatorship of the proletarian, but I think he was speaking figuratively. I think he was talking about a society led by the working class, not one that was led by a powerful class of bureaucrats and despots and commissars. But instead, Lenin and Stalin were literally dictators. And these powerful autocrats and the unaccountable commissars that took their orders directly from the top had access to incredible wealth and power and controlled the entire resources amassed by the Russian society. And I think that Marx would have rolled around in his grave if he knew what happened in the Soviet Union all under his namesake. Following the 1917 coup and the Bolshevik party takeover, it didn't take long for Lenin and the vanguard party to dissolve and dismantle working class unions, councils, federations, and other working class led organizing structures that were built up in the years following the Russian exit from World War One, And so the governing structures that remained in Russia following the revolution, or what some might call a coup d'etat, maintained virtually no similarities to socialism or Marxist thought. There had always been a rich tradition of socialist thought, which involved worker-owned and controlled enterprises, but it became pretty apparent very early on that this would not be a staple of the post-revolution Soviet Union. After dismantling the workers' councils, what remained was an extremely powerful and centrally organized state, controlled by autocrats, commissars, and the vanguard party. Orders in the party came from the top, starting with Lenin and later Stalin, and the working class peasants found themselves again back at the bottom of the Russian social hierarchy. So even though the Tsar was overthrown and later killed, after the Russian Revolution, there was still a very rigid caste system in the country. So maybe some of the faces and people in power changed following the Bolshevik takeover, but what remained was a highly class-conscious ruling class and a society where the peasantry was really not that much better off than they were prior to the revolution. There were many widespread famines and devastating food shortages which required breadlines during the entire history of the Soviet Union which is a phenomenon rarely seen in truly functioning democratic societies, which the United States is not one, far from it in fact, which is why food shortages, homelessness, and extreme poverty are all major problems in the modern United States. Just like anything that's commoditized, freedom is a commodity as well, and if you are rich in the United States, you can buy a lot of it. But many Americans today are blessed with incredible privileges, and these rights were won from long, hard-fought struggles. They were not gifts from above. They were won by workers and generations that came before us. And the history of labor in the United States is extremely bloody. United States labor history is much more violent than European labor history. I can remember back to the homestead strikes, where still workers in Pittsburgh were fighting for a living wage and better working conditions. That's when the management of U.S. Steel led by Frick and Andrew Carnegie, brought in the Pinkerton Guard to massacre and kill the striking laborers. 
But as much as working class Americans are repressed and exploited every single day in the modern United States, workers in other countries around the world still have it much worse off, especially workers of the global south, for example, which is why it is common for American manufacturing jobs to be transferred overseas to these countries, so that huge transnational corporations can exploit a highly suppressed labor force, paying them pennies on the dollar for the same work that modern American laborers would do for a much higher wage. Which is why Nike Corporation chose Indonesia to manufacture shoes. There's no advantage to producing shoes in Indonesia. There's not better machinery or better shoe technology there. There's not more natural resources involved in shoe production there. The reason Nike shoes are produced in Indonesia is so the greedy Nike executives can take advantage of a highly repressed and exploited workforce. Forcing women and children to slave their lives away in sweatshops for pennies a day. This is just one example, but there are a number of different countries in the Global South where jobs have been transferred to, so that executives and corporate leadership teams can maximize profits on the backs of cheap and exploited labor, so they don't have to pay, to quote the business presses, the pampered Western workers. This is how neoliberalism works. The entire capitalist system is extremely resilient and sophisticated, with a number of different gears and levers built into it, so that the capitalists can overcome inevitable working-class resistance and pushback, and even the threat of job transfer can crush a strike. The capitalist system is twofold, because not only do the capitalists maximize profits by exploiting workers of the global south, reducing billions of people to a service role and mere pawns to the western powers, but also puts workers of the industrialized world in competition with workers of the third world, thus keeping wages down for everyone. Not only that, but transnational corporations also put countries in competition with one another, keeping taxes low and environmental restrictions at a minimum. And in many instances, the Global South is used as a trash can by the West, as garbage and manufacturing byproducts are shipped to the Global South, leading to ecosystem collapse and widespread contamination, poisoning the food and drinking water of millions, and creating millions more climate refugees and people on the verge of hunger, disease, and death. The entire climate crisis is a byproduct of capitalism, and the refugees created by this climate crisis are rejected by many of the rich countries of the West because of their extremely tight immigration standards. And in many cases, these vulnerable people are blocked entrance and are sometimes even arrested, imprisoned, and killed trying to immigrate to a safer country. If we truly wanted to solve the refugee crisis, the countries that are destroying the planet would be the ones forced to take in all the refugees. The same can be said about the global wars of imperialism. So the aggressors should be forced to take in the brunt of the refugees created, and in many cases, the United States, as in their military involvement with Afghanistan and Iraq twice, would be the ones obligated to take in the millions of refugees created by these wars. The U.S. war in Afghanistan cost the U.S. taxpayers roughly $2 trillion, and a Brown University study estimated that it cost U.S. taxpayers nearly $300 million a day for nearly two years. The total cost of the global war on terror cost Americans an estimated $8 trillion, not to mention the mountains of corpses these wars created. But not only were these wars costly, they were also wrong and immoral. At best, these international incidents were acts of terrorism carried out by the U.S. And at worst, these wars were displays of outright aggression, which was considered the supreme crime by the Nuremberg Tribunal, the same crime that got Nazi war criminals hanged. Estimates for lives lost in the 20-year conflict in the Afghanistan war zone are nearly 250,000 people, and this includes 70,000 civilians. This figure was estimated by Brown University, but of course these estimates vary, and the figures aren't much investigated by the United States. And that's because the rule of power is ubiquitous, and possibly universal, and that is, 
You scrupulously investigate the crimes of your enemies, down to the very last innocent woman, child, and newborn baby killed or ripped to pieces. But you cover up or suppress investigations of your own crimes. And that's because those in power never like to be questioned or challenged. Afghanistan is one of the most war-torn places on Earth. And if civilians weren't directly killed by U.S. forces and airstrikes, they might have been killed by armed Afghani militia groups weaponized by the CIA. You must also remember that the United States is the largest weapons trafficker in the world. And Afghanistan is also greatly contaminated with unexploded ordinances, still injuring tens of thousands of Afghans each year as they travel, work the lands, and do their daily chores. The war in Afghanistan has also exacerbated the effects of poverty, malnutrition, sanitation, lack of health care, and environmental degradation, leading to exceedingly poor health outcomes of the Afghans. The U.S. has been one of the leading opponents against human rights in the modern world, frequently voting against the rest of the world and the international coalition on things like food, shelter, and health care. Sometimes nations like Israel, Britain, Canada, and Australia vote with the master, while others abstain entirely. And these votes are not well covered by the mainstream press in the United States. Food insecurity is a major problem in the world, and it's worsened by war, climate change, and a corporate-led destruction of the environment and the commons. And of course, many of the most powerful corporations and transnationals are based in the United States. So one vote in particular, recognizing food as a human right, was taken in 2002. There, 176 countries voted yes in acceptance of food as an international right. The lone vote as to no was the United States. Seven nations abstained from this vote the United States being the only country in the world opposition to food being a human right. The U.S. is frequently isolated at the U.N. and it's now starting to become a pariah state. The U.S. military is also the world's largest polluter, and the effects of American imperialism can be seen everywhere as environmental destruction continues to spiral out of control. The U.S. war in Afghanistan continues to destroy the lives and war-induced breakdown of the economy, security, public health, and infrastructure. Afghanistan has been massively impoverished by the conflict, with 92% of the population facing some level of food insecurity, including 3 million people at risk for acute malnutrition. At least half the population lives on less than $1.90 per day. At a time when the U.S. government has frozen $7 billion in Afghan assets that should be distributed to the Afghan people, regardless of the administration that currently holds power in this war-stricken country. Occupiers and aggressors are entitled to absolutely zero rights. Forget about those frozen assets. The U.S. should be paying reparations to Afghanistan. What if there was an international coalition and a call for sanctions against America for what it did to the Afghans? What if there is an international movement to remove the United States from the global economic system for its outright attack on Afghanistan? Perhaps very similar to the current treatment of Russia today, as it's outcasted and exiled and as European countries in the West boycott and embargo Russian goods, with actions to remove it from the international financial system. Would that be effective? Helpful? Would it teach the leaders a lesson? Would it teach the American people a lesson? What would be accomplished then? The reality is, sanctions almost never work, and they rarely achieve their desired outcome. What they usually do is make tyrannical leaders more powerful than ever, because they often lead to increased poverty and despair within the targeted society. A society forcing the population to become more dependent than ever on despots and sometimes even galvanizing a nation in an us-versus-them jingoist fanaticism, whipping the population into hysteria and a frenzy.
In America, dissidents and critics of U.S. foreign policy decisions and of Washington leadership are usually targets of oppression. And within the doctrinal system, they're usually rallying behind decisions made by U.S. brass, all in subservience to power, which is nearly unanimous, and it's often bipartisan and uniform, regardless of which party or administration is in power. Especially when the drum of war begins to beat, everyone gets in line in a display of jingoist fanaticism. Everyone marches behind the flag, glorifying the stars and stripes and showering the military with praise. In American society, Russian dissidents and those who are critical of Putin and the state's military aggression, especially right now in the Ukraine, are celebrated by the Western media. But subversives and critics of American foreign policy and of U.S. imperialism and the military-industrial complex are often harshly targeted, censored, and even repressed. Speaking truth to power comes with great consequence while subservience to power is always praised and lucratively rewarded. Subservience to power in American society comes with great status and opportunity. But of course, dissidents and subversives are much more harshly treated in Russian's authoritarian society led by Putin. And speaking of despots and authoritarian societies, I'd now like to transition to Iraq, and more specifically, the first war in Iraq. U.S. leadership chose intervention when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait when he disobeyed orders from the master. Or what is much more likely, he mistook orders, and neither is allowed. So what's often discussed in U.S. circles regarding the wars in Iraq is that Saddam Hussein is a criminal and an iron-fisted dictator, which is true, but it's rarely mentioned that he was on the CIA payroll through his harshest atrocities, including when he gassed his own civilians. But the reason the U.S. invaded has nothing to do with human rights abuses or morality, and it doesn't have anything to do much with ousting a dictator and a despot, although that was secondary. The war in Iraq was fought because of power and economic incentives, and because of the U.S. strategic interest in the region, and that of course means oil rights. The U.S. has one very important strategic advantage over the rest of the world, and that's its military. And by now, the U.S. military spending nearly equals the rest of the world combined. And it uses its strategic advantage in violence to run the world. There's a lot of misinformation, propaganda, and indoctrination trying to manufacture the consent and influence people's opinions to believe that the world is run by law and order. And that there is international system of law based on morality and human rights. And for good reason. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Look no further than the supposed party of law and order, the Republicans, and their poster boy, Ronald Reagan, whose administration was actually censured by the World Court for their terror wars in Latin America, admonishing them to follow international law. But of course, these remarks were toothless, and the U.S. is the master of the international system, and everyone else must fall in line, because the U.S. is a very powerful and violent state. You better not mess around with it, and Saddam Hussein found out the hard way you don't mess around with the United States. There's a lot of striking similarities with global politics and the Mafia, and these principles are almost universal. So in the case of Saddam Hussein, who disobeyed orders from the Don, what happened? Well, with the case of the Mafia, it's never about the money, and the U.S. was more than willing to let Saddam Hussein resolve the borders with Kuwait, and even allow him to exercise some control over Iraq's oil rights, just as long as the profits flowed to the West. But what you can't do is disobey orders, and that's exactly what Saddam Hussein did. He disobeyed the Godfather's orders. So in this scenario, what does the Godfather do? Well, he usually gets some thugs to come in and rough up subversives to teach them a lesson. Maybe twist some arms and break some bones. Send a message that insubordination will not be treated kindly so that everyone in the neighborhood gets the message that disobedience will not be tolerated. The U.S. could have easily wiped Iraq off the map, but it stopped short of that. 
What it did in the Gulf was send a message to its enemies and even more importantly its allies about what might happen if you mess around with the Godfather or the American military industrial complex and its war machine. Of course, the military and defense budget is not exclusively for war making. It has other functions, like to publicly finance private high-tech industry, all under the guise of defense, which is why the military budget must keep going up, even during times of peace. So, for example, what happened when the Soviet Union collapsed? Did the U.S. military budget dissolve or drop? Did it bring about world peace? Did the U.S. standing army dismantle? Of course not. And following a couple years of stagnation, the military-industrial complex began to rise again. It has to. That's because capitalism has never actually been tried. And neoliberalism is basically socialism for the rich and capitalism or rugged free markets for everyone else. In fact, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the U.S. invaded Panama in an international flex of power. And they did that because the threat of deterrent was gone. The Soviet Union was no longer tasked with defending the global south against U.S. imperialism. I think there was an agenda for the Cold War, and I think it was about returning Russia and Eastern Europe to its traditional service role of the West. The Cold War was fought on class grounds, but of course, the Soviet Union and its authoritarian regime, which was borderline a totalitarian system, was a dungeon for most people to live under, at least those that survived it. But the Soviet Union did do some good things, like its forced industrialization, which took the country and a peasant society out of the third world and put it in competition with the world's most foremost superpower, perhaps the richest country in world history even. But that does not justify or legitimate the Soviet Union. Many people were treated harshly, and starvation and hunger were rampant throughout the entire Soviet Union. And workers were really not that much better off. As with any revolution or war, you have to look at the agenda and who won, who benefited. The winners of the revolution were the same elites and bourgeoisie who maintained power during the time of the Tsar. The same class maintained power, the new commissar class, as they were called. And maybe some of the faces changed, but there was still a divided society where you had elites and everybody else. The Bolshevik party took power by force in a coup d'etat, and it maintained that power through a commissar class. But the rhetoric this party used was very appealing to the peasant class. They all benefited from the lure of socialism, which was very popular amongst working-class people around the globe at the time. The Soviet Union was neither democratic nor socialist. At the core of socialism is worker control over the means of production, and that is not in any way how the Soviet Union was organized. In fact, the way I see it, differences between the Soviet Union and America are only slight. The only differences are where the power centers lie in society. In America, power is concentrated in the ownership class, the class of people who own all the businesses, assets, and real estate. That's the same class of people called the political class, the people who can use their money and influence to buy politicians and influence policy in Washington, which in a capitalist society has always had a pro-business slant. In the Soviet Union, power was concentrated in the vanguard party, ruled over by a powerful commissar class of bureaucrats. It was kind of like capitalism, but with less steps. As I've said before, the Soviet Union was not socialist at all. Maybe in theory, but definitely not in practice. And that's because all worker-run organizations, federations, and councils were ripped down and dismantled following the revolution of 1917 by Lenin, who was a powerful dictator and authoritarian autocrat. And this regime set the stage for Stalin, who would go on to become one of history's worst criminals of all time. But things got even worse. 
following the collapse of the Soviet Union when Russia was reintegrated into the capitalist system. So who won? Besides Americans and Western big businesses who made cheap investments in the Russian economy and reaped great profits on the misery of Russian workers. It was the same commissar class who previously held power in the Soviet Union. These were the only people with enough wealth and means to buy up all the old public institutions, property, and equipment, and then turn them all into private businesses, exploiting the same working class and lower class people they controlled in the old Soviet system. The only difference is the exploitation got much worse, as a new profit motive was reintroduced. One thing I know to be true is when the two great propaganda systems of the world come together on something, look out. The West called the Soviet Union socialist to defame socialism, and Russia called themselves socialist to capitalize on the good name of socialism, which was appealing to the working class, the peasants, and to the working class of the global south. But the Soviet Union was neither socialist nor democratic. It was a cruel and harsh society run by autocrats and bureaucrats. But again, things got even worse in the aftermath of its fall, as Russia was opened up to good old-fashioned capitalist exploitation from the so-called Western democracies and the capitalist societies of the world. Now let's get back into the U.S. imperial agenda before we finish with a brief history of NATO and elaborate on modern Russian war crimes. I've already briefly mentioned the human and economic costs with the war in Afghanistan and the political implications with the wars in Iraq. The first Gulf War cost U.S. taxpayers $61 billion and cost the lives of at least 189,000 people, displacing at least 5 million more in 30 different countries in the region. But why was the U.S. military in Iraq in the first place? Why did America invade and occupy this country? Of course, both wars in Iraq were fought over political and economic interests, or the Iraqi oil rights. But what right does the U.S. have to be there? The war was certainly not fought on moral grounds, since I've already mentioned that Saddam Hussein was on the CIA payroll during his most brutal crimes. But even if the war was fought on human rights and moral and ethical grounds, what right does the U.S. have to interfere with the politics of a foreign country? Why does America get to topple any government in a country they don't like and replace it with a puppet regime? Historically speaking, the U.S. has overthrown governments around the world it doesn't like and what U.S. brass calls regime change. And perhaps the only reason the American government has never been toppled is because there is no U.S. embassy in Washington, D.C. But I think the only people who should have a say in the Iraqi government and whether or not Saddam Hussein and his iron-fisted regime is replaced is the people of Iraq. In fact, polling of the Iraqi people during the first Gulf War revealed that 95% of the population thought the only reason the U.S. invaded was to seize control over their oil rights and resources. Only 5% thought the war was about spreading democracy or on humanitarian grounds. And you can almost guarantee that 5% of the Iraqi population, assuming it wasn't statistical error, had a deep tie with American power and probably had economic connections with Western banks and U.S.-based corporations. In fact, during the second war in Iraq, the number actually jumped up to 99% of the population who thought that the United States was there to seize oil rights and maintain control of Iraqi resources. And on to the second war in Iraq and the second Bush, who once compared the U.S. military to a hammer and said that when you have the world's biggest hammer, that every problem starts to look like a nail. So what good is having the most powerful and violent military the world has ever seen if you never get a chance to use it, right? March 20th, 2023 marked 20 years since U.S. forces invaded Iraq to oust dictator Saddam Hussein in order to flex power over Iraqi oil rights, which was a reaction to the September 11th attacks 
even as there was virtually no connection between the World Trade Center terrorist attack and the Iraqi government. But there had to be a flimsy pretext to justify the attack. And there's always a subservient American intellectual class, and they delivered. And so what you got was a powerful deluge of propaganda led by the Western mainstream media. And it was so potent and successful that a significant portion of the American electorate viewed Iraq and Saddam Hussein as an imminent threat to the United States. With clear insinuations that Iraq was responsible for 9-11 and the attacks on the Twin Towers. This propaganda was created to manufacture the consent of a frightened population so that the Bush administration could carry out their domestic and foreign policy agenda. If the population is scared, if they feel the need to take shelter behind a powerful leader, they are much more likely to accept an authoritarian government and a right-wing political agenda. The U.S. is one of the most paranoid and frightened societies in the world. Following the 9-11 attacks, Condoleezza Rice came out with an outlandish prediction, saying that the next thing we were going to see from Iraq and the Saddam Hussein-led military is a mushroom cloud. And that was followed by a chorus of lies and propaganda trumpeted by the mainstream media on both sides of the aisle, which was repeated passionately by the entire Bush administration. And this propaganda had a huge effect. It was very successful, so successful that 60% of the American electorate thought Saddam Hussein was a threat to U.S. national security, which is absurd, and also why the establishment had to keep repeating these lies so they could finally take effect. And this is just a demonstration of the law of propaganda, dating back to Goebbels and the Nazis, because if you repeat a lie often enough, it eventually becomes truth. About half the U.S. population thought Iraq was responsible for the September 11th attacks and that Iraqis were on the planes to hit the World Trade Center towers. And those beliefs turned out to be highly correlated for support for the war in Iraq. Naturally, which makes sense. And the war in Iraq was a real war, although it was extremely unpopular in the rest of the world, at least the world outside the United States. U.S. brass was barely able to get anyone to go along with the war on such flimsy pretexts, which collapsed immediately under examination. Israel, Britain, and other tiny pockets around the world that were highly interconnected with American wealth and power, there was almost no support for the war. There was also the false claim that was perpetrated by the Bush administration that Saddam Hussein was manufacturing weapons of mass destruction. But of course, if he was, it would have been because of the help of Daddy Bush and the CIA, because Saddam Hussein was kept on the U.S. payroll through his worst atrocities. U.S. ground presence peaked in 2007, with over 170,000 soldiers with boots on the ground during the second Iraqi invasion and occupation, during the years of 2003 through 2006. It's also been estimated that the total death toll included somewhere between 200,000 and 700,000 people, with millions more injured and still millions more refugees created. Economic costs for the war in Iraq total $1.1 trillion for U.S. taxpayers. Now I'd like to talk about the so-called War on Terror. And of course, the United States is the leading terror state in the world and the leading perpetrator of violence. The U.S. also leads the world in weapons manufacturing and trafficking. And if U.S. leadership actually wanted to combat terrorism, they would stop participating in it, or at least stop enabling it and supporting it. According to Brown University, the global war on terror, which included the 20 years which followed the invasion of Afghanistan, totaled $8 trillion in costs and 900,000 deaths. Deaths include U.S. military, allied fighters, opposition fighters, civilians, journalists, and humanitarian aid workers. The global war on terror has long-lasting and deep-seated effects. 
It was horrific and incredibly unsuccessful, at least as it relates to the U.S. domestic population and the people of the region who are the victims. It did have a very positive effect for U.S. power centers and economic benefits for the U.S. ruling class. I think it's well documented that the global war on terror was nothing more than propaganda and cover for American imperial agenda. And now I'd like to go back to 1945, after the defeat of Germany, when the U.S. used two nuclear missiles to terrorize the people of Japan and to force their government into an unconditional surrender, officially ending World War II. This came at a time when the U.S. mainland was not under any threat from the Japanese. And when Hawaii was attacked, at the time, it was still a U.S. colony, which was stolen from the Hawaiian people at gunpoint. In fact, the U.S. mainland has not been under any threat of attack since the War of 1812, although the U.S. has been at constant war since about 1776. Even though the U.S. is historically unique and unlike most countries, without any natural enemies, which is resource-rich and with enormous wealth and power, it's probably the richest country in world history. And following its victory in World War II, after finally defeating the Japanese, after an unprovoked nuclear attack, which followed an extremely harsh firebombing campaign of Tokyo, the center point of the Japanese homeland, killing hundreds of thousands of people, burning them alive, and displacing millions more, creating a city of starving, vulnerable, and homeless people. It's also worth remembering that the threat of firebombings was also used as justification for the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor a naval installation, which would eventually be used to attack the Japanese mainland and carry out the U.S.-led portion of the Pacific Theater during World War II. This provoked attack on Pearl Harbor led to the deaths of roughly 2,500 U.S. service members, injuring another 1,700 or so people. There was certainly a U.S. escalation of violence, which led to the use of the two most infamous and violent weapons which were ever used during war by humanity, forever changing the world. In my opinion, the all-out war that was unleashed against Japan by the United States was a power play. It had nothing to do with defense, which is ironic, because the Department of War changed its name to the Department of Defense not long after World War II ended in 1947. I guess in the old days, people were just more honest. The U.S. unleashed widespread terror on Japan, because it didn't want to share global hegemony, especially after the fall of Germany and the German defeat. It didn't want to share control and power with the Japanese in the Pacific, or anywhere else in the world for that matter. And power and control of the Asian economy was what the war in the Pacific was all about. So after the last mushroom cloud faded away and World War II ended, the U.S. was in control of half the world's money supply, with a tiny fraction of the world's population. And American manufacturing was left untouched by the war, like the rest of the U.S. mainland. And in fact, U.S. taxpayers even paid for the reconstruction of Europe with the Marshall Plan, led on by U.S. manufacturing. And while some of the rebuilding efforts were aided by U.S. taxpayers with huge sums of public money, the profits from the rebuild were mostly privatized. Following World War II, U.S. planners were very lucid. They knew what they were doing. Even before the war ended, they started covering up the world. It was first thought that part of the world, Europe, would be controlled by Germany, and Japan would control Asia. The U.S. would control the rest. This all came to light after the archives were opened up. The U.S. is a very unique and free society, and the classified records are usually released to the public to analyze after 30 years, usually, depending on what administration is in power, and depending on the nature of the subject matter. But some state secrets are deemed too important to reveal, even decades later, allegedly at least. 
But when the Soviet Union fell, only afterwards were the archives opened up. And that's because the U.S. is a much freer society. But you might not even know it, because the classified record is rarely even mentioned by the press, outside of some very select circles. And that's because we don't have a free press in the United States. We have a highly subservient and obedient one. But that's for another podcast. If history was actually taught in America and in Western society, it might start after World War II with the reconstruction of Europe, thanks to the Marshall Plan and the U.S. taxpayers, which subsidized the reconstruction effort, and the project was taken on by many U.S.-based corporations receiving generous allotments of public money. These corporations were also responsible in constructing the New World Order after the fall of Germany and Japan. Originally, U.S. planners thought there might be a tripolar world but now, with the two greatest threats to American hegemony out of the way, Germany and Japan, a bipolar world involving Russia was beginning to take shape. Russia's sphere of influence would be the mother country as well as Eastern Europe, and the U.S. would pretty much get everything else. U.S. planners were very lucid at this time, and thanks to free speech and public information laws, the classified record is now opened up for us to analyze, so we can actually see what our leaders were up to. The way I see it, the purpose of classified records are to cover up the crimes of elites running the state. But that's for another podcast. Back to the post-World War II globe, where the U.S. controlled half the world's wealth and had a tiny fraction of the world's population, somewhere between 6 and 7%. So what U.S. planners wanted to do at the time was to maintain this disparity. What U.S. planners wanted to construct was a new world order to protect U.S. power, wealth, and hegemony. But the new world order was a lot like the old. And unfortunately for U.S. planners, there was a lot of resistance to the conservative order at the time, especially in Europe, because of its ties to Nazism and fascism. So what U.S. brass did was align with Nazi and fascist collaborators to break up these resistance movements and to dispel any dissidents using violence and deadly force. Nazis and fascists tend to run a tight ship, and part of their objective throughout the 1930s and into World War II was to break up leftist movements worker organizing, unions, and any other pocket of resistance that would interfere with the way they wanted to run things. That meant a close nexus between state and corporate power. Nazi Germany was probably about the most totalitarian society ever created, so it only made sense for U.S. planners to ally with Nazi and fascist collaborators around the world. These people were already targeting the same groups that would be interfering with a world led by U.S. power centers. Nazis and fascists are professionals at using violence to break up resistance and subversive movements. And many of the goals were even the same. Which is why I'd like to repeat that the New World Order following World War II, which was a lot like the Old World Order led by Nazi Germany. At least in Europe, that is. So now on to U.S. and Soviet relations following World War II. An interplay. The Cold War. NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was formed in 1949 and a move that heightened tensions between Russia and the United States, a leading reason for the Cold War that followed between the world's most prominent superpowers until the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. The Warsaw Pact was the Soviets' reaction to NATO, which came into existence in 1955, but later dissolved after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Of course, NATO did not dissolve following the Soviet Union's collapse, however. In fact, it actually expanded. And that's because NATO was not, is not, and has never been a defensive organization. NATO has always been an aggressive, hostile military alliance, led by the United States in accordance with an American imperial agenda. NATO has been meddling in the affairs of foreign governments for as long as it's existed, including direct military involvement and occupation of Yugoslavia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and Syria. 
1949, the 12 founding members of NATO were the United States and its always loyal Lieutenant Britain, formerly of the United Kingdom. It also included Denmark, Belgium, Canada, France, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, and Portugal. Four new members joined at the height of the Cold War, and in 1952, Greece was added. Turkey was also added in 1952, West Germany in 1955, and Spain in 1982. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, a unified Germany was added. During the interlude and prior to the fall of the Soviet Union, George Bush I and other American diplomats assured then-leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, that NATO would not expand, even if the Warsaw Pact dissolved. After the first Bush, Clinton entered the White House, and later promised Russian President Boris Yeltsin that NATO would not expand one inch to the east. Of course, this was just a gentleman's agreement, and was never put into writing. And the Clinton administration later quipped that if you're going to accept a gentleman's agreement with the United States, then that would be your problem. But what most foreign policy experts feared is that continued expansion of NATO would bring the world ever closer to nuclear war and total annihilation of the human species. Both the United States and Russia are currently sitting on more than 5,000 nuclear weapons apiece, with hundreds more scattered around the rest of the world in the UK, France, Israel, Pakistan, India, China, and North Korea. And it's widely suspected that somewhere in the order of 10 to 100 nuclear missiles simultaneously launched would lead to nuclear annihilation and end the prospects of life on Earth. But of course, that's just speculation. Nobody knows for sure. Nuclear weapons have always been a first-strike weapon, and these bombs and missiles have nothing to do with defense. And it's almost like the world is led by a small group of psychopaths, all committed to mutually assured destruction. The world came very close to nuclear war during the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the reckless and aggressive actions of John F. Kennedy almost ended the prospects of life on Earth. Back in 1962, a Soviet submarine near Cuba was bombarded with non-lethal depth charges from U.S. forces, and Soviet pilots were unaware of the intentions, and the U.S. military did not realize that that submarine was equipped with a very special weapon, one of the most lethal in the Soviet arsenal. On the submarine was a 10-kiloton nuclear torpedo, and what was even more striking is the officers on that submarine had permission to launch without approval from Moscow. During the ordeal, two of the vessel's most senior officers voted to launch a torpedo, but one objected, and the missile was never fired because unanimous approval was needed. And had it been launched, the fate of the world would have been different, very different. It may have even led to nuclear war and the end of humanity. I probably wouldn't even be around to talk about the whole saga right now. And this whole ordeal later led General Lee Butler to proclaim that, so far, nuclear war had been averted by some combination of skill, luck, and divine intervention, and I suspect the latter in greatest proportion. And so with that being said, and the Cuban Missile Crisis behind us, NATO began to expand again in 1999 at the Washington Summit, with the additions of Hungary, Poland, and the Czech Republic, and with new membership action plans, which now govern additional members Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia, which were all added in 2004. In 2009, Albania and Croatia were added, Montenegro in 2017, and North Macedonia in 2020, with Finland as the newest member joining in April of 2023 at the height of the crisis in Ukraine. 
U.S. diplomats and many foreign policy experts point out that Ukraine and Georgia are clear red lines that are not to be crossed, at least if nuclear war is to be averted. Expansion of NATO and the rumors to eventually add Ukraine were the necessary provocations used to justify Putin's decision to attack and invade Ukraine, which by no means legitimizes Russian aggression or the use of force. Putin is a war criminal and an autocrat who rules over Russia, which is a far-right authoritarian state with iron-fisted control. But, unfortunately, that's nothing new in international politics, as the United States frequently allies with harsh dictators and human rights abusers around the globe. For example, Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Along with a cast of others, just look at the United States' history in Latin America. And with the endless expansion of NATO, and with international nuclear policies seemingly decided on by psychopaths who seem committed to mutually assured destruction, what room is there in the world for the United Nations, human rights, or international law in general? It sure does seem like NATO is committed to continued expansion, making the EU, the UN, and other super-governmental and international ruling bodies obsolete. The U.S. has a strategic advantage in force, and it seems pretty committed to ruling the world by violence, as its military continues to nearly outspend the rest of the world combined. The war in Ukraine seems to be Russia's response to U.S. and NATO-sponsored expansion and imperialism, ensuring that NATO, which is a hostile military alliance, does not advance all the way up to the Russian borders with NATO nuclear weapons targeting the entire Russian mainland. Remembering back to October of 1962, when Cuba was nearly blown off the map for having nuclear missiles in range of U.S. borders, a prospect many Russians have faced every single day of their lives, as NATO and the Western military-industrial complex breeze down their necks putting millions of Russians in the crosshairs of weapons of mass destruction. I'd like to now think for a minute, if Mexico would ever align with China or Russia, possibly working together to develop nuclear missiles, that would eventually be placed on Mexican soil, well within the range of the U.S. mainland. What do you think might happen? I think it's pretty obvious. Mexico would be threatened with total annihilation. It would likely even be called some kind of defensive or preemptive war tactic by Western intellectuals and the agenda-setting media. This might be worth pondering as you analyze the media coverage of the war in Ukraine. I remember reading an article in March of 2023 where China threatened consequences over a U.S. Navy warship's actions in the South China Sea, just miles off the Chinese mainland. And my first question is, what is a U.S. warship doing thousands of miles away from U.S. borders? Surely that can't be defensive. The only reason a U.S. Navy destroyer has a purpose to be thousands of miles away from U.S. borders and just off the coast of the Chinese mainland is provocation, aggression, or outright imperialism. But if you're indoctrinated by a good Western education and your belief system is the United States owns and runs the entire world, then you probably think it all makes sense. And you might even think China is even out of line for challenging the U.S. military presence in the South China Sea. It's all meant to be provocative. Just like Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. And you can imagine if the Chinese Navy was conducting military operations off the coast of Oregon, or maybe even in the San Francisco Bay, what might happen to that ship? I think it's pretty obvious. The only reason U.S. warships patrol the Pacific and Indian Oceans is because the U.S. runs the world. It's the same reason most U.S. planners post-World War II considered the Mediterranean Sea an American lake. The tensions constructed by the American political establishment with China is psychopathic. It's also very provocative and dangerous, and could just as easily lead to World War III and nuclear annihilation as the crisis in Ukraine. 
Much of the paranoia about China is led by the Republican establishment and the American right wing, as they are fixated and obsessed with China's growing power, wealth, and prestige in the rest of the world. And of course, the Chinese government is spying on us. All governments are power centers obsessed with maintaining their power. And intel is one method all nation states gather to maintain their control over society, especially the domestic population, which is always the greatest threat to any government. And if China is spying on us, as well as its citizens, you can guarantee the U.S. government and the corporate state nexus aided by Silicon Valley is carrying out the same surveillance, but at a scope and scale ten times as great as the Chinese government. There's also an obsession with the Chinese government stealing Western technology, which is ludicrous and hypocritical, because any growing empire has stolen technology throughout its rise and during its course of development, all throughout history. So the Brits stole technology from India and the East during its development, and the U.S. stole technology from Britain before, during, and after independence was won. The only thing that generous intellectual property rights do is provide corporations with protections and monopolistic pricing rights that they use to profiteer and price gouge the public. So the corporate ownership class wins and everyone else loses. So take the pharmaceutical industry and drug prices and American Big Pharma. America is just about the only country in the world where government is not legally allowed to negotiate drug prices. It can't do it in, say, the VA, which is probably one of the only functioning components of the U.S. healthcare system. In fact, the U.S. doesn't even have a healthcare system. It has a national disaster. So patent rights protect big pharma. But who loses? Well, everyone else. At least those that want to pay cheaper and more reasonable prices for drugs. In this scenario, competition would be a great thing. But the way capitalism is practiced, inherently protectionist and uncompetitive, giving rise to corporate domination, monopoly, and oligarchy. So a handful of firms control the entire pharmaceutical industry, creating oligopolies that form strategic alliances with each other, who all enjoy monopolistic pricing rights on drugs. Now before I get too deep in the weeds with the economic system, which runs in parallel with the political system, I'd like to transition back to foreign policy and global affairs. Again, what's the purpose of the UN if NATO continues to expand to include all of Europe and potentially the rest of the world. Well, one reason NATO may not expand to include the rest of the world is the United States is very unpopular in the global south. In fact, many Europeans have even been pushing for an independent course of development that doesn't even include the United States. There have basically been widespread protests throughout Europe since the day the war in the Ukraine began, and many see it as a proxy war between the United States and Russia, a war that could potentially end in nuclear annihilation. And in fact, France was pushing for peace talks with Russia up until Ukraine was invaded. And the U.S. has been standing in the way of diplomacy and stifling all peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. And even a Turkish-led effort in diplomacy stalled out because the United States refused to cooperate or be an arbiter of peace. U.S. leadership is committed to winning the war in Ukraine, even down to the last Ukrainian body. In general, war has nothing to do with peace or morality, obviously. It's all about power. And in this war, innocent Ukrainians are being used as cannon fodder in order to advance a U.S. imperial agenda. And that's because the war in Ukraine is only a tiny fraction of the bloated U.S. military budget. It's also been very successful in weakening Russia, the U.S.'s greatest military rival. Just about the worst thing in the world, at least the way that I see it, is an all-powerful NATO without any serious threat or military deterrent. The war in Ukraine has been very beneficial for U.S.-based transnational corporations. 
and the cost of living crisis that's going on today in the world right now is due in large proportion to record corporate profits and greedflation, which has been a great thing for a handful of corporations which control the world's food supply, but a terrible thing for millions of starving people around the world. And the financial sanctions placed on Russian businesses have been a great thing for Western businesses, especially in the financial sector, as Russian banks were essentially cut off from the Western financial system, so they can enjoy high interest rates and record profits. And because of the Russian embargo, U.S. fossil fuel companies are rolling in cash. They can't even find a place to put all the money that's overflowing their coffers. And with Russian energy companies cut out of global markets, U.S.-based energy corporations can exercise monopolistic pricing rights, profiteering and price gouging, and pretty much charging Europe whatever it wants for oil, liquefied natural gas, and other energy commodities. So in Germany, they are paying maybe 10 times as much for oil from the U.S. as it was from Russia for the same commodity. And many Germans would be happy again to accept Russian energy at a fraction of the cost it pays U.S. firms. And much of Europe is growing tired of the cost of living crisis, which is being accelerated by the proxy war unfolding in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine has been very unpopular to begin with, especially in much of the rest of the world, including the global south which has stayed neutral throughout the entire conflict in Ukraine, and which has also been the victim of U.S. imperialism for generations, time and time again. Many in the Global South don't see any difference between U.S. aggression and Russian aggression. It might also be worth mentioning that defense contractors and weapons producers are making a killing right now, pun intended, as it always seems to profiteer from acts of violence, terrorism, and war. This is the reason U.S.-based weapons producers would rather an endless war in Ukraine down to the very last Ukrainian body. There will be a world after the war in Ukraine. At least we all hope so. And it will involve Russia, which should be reintegrated back into the global system, which is what most people around the world want. And that's the biggest reason much of the global south didn't get involved in this altercation between two global powers in this proxy war. There are usually two ways wars end. One, one nation is totally defeated. That might be Ukraine, but it certainly won't be Russia, who possesses a strategic military advantage, which includes an arsenal of nuclear weapons. So at any time, Russia has the power to escalate the war in Ukraine, almost indefinitely. But we do know Russia will not be totally defeated. That's just fantasy. In fact, so far, some commentators have even mentioned that Russia is fighting more humanely than the U.S. typically fights. It might even be true that Russia has not attacked Ukraine with the same violent fervor the U.S. usually unleashes on unsuspecting targets. When the U.S. and NATO attack, they almost always unleash total war. They target transportation, infrastructure, energy grids, roads, bridges, civilian installations, even healthcare facilities. Take, for example, the pharmaceutical factory bombed by Clinton in Saddam, killing several people directly, but leading to the deaths of thousands stricken by disease and famine, who were unable to secure medicine and treatment. There's a long history of U.S. targeting civilian facilities, so now I'll just mention a few. In 1991, an infant formula plant in Iraq. In 1991, again, an air raid shelter in Iraq. In Serbia in 1999, a train and a TV and radio studio. In 2001, a Red Cross building in Afghanistan and media offices from 2001 to 2003 in Iraq, including a hotel in that same year. If you have noticed, there's a host of world leaders traveling to Kiev to see President Zelensky, the West's favorite puppet leader, and of course the face of the U.S. military-industrial complex. If you can remember back to both wars in Iraq, there were no world leaders or diplomats traveling to Baghdad. In fact, the media, 
Human rights workers and volunteers were even asked to leave at times because the fighting had gotten so intense and violent. And there were certainly no diplomats traveling to Kabul, Afghanistan during the duration of the U.S. attack and occupation. In fact, many aid workers died violently in these war-torn lands. I already stated that a total defeat of Russia was out of the question, outside of nuclear war, although total defeat of Ukraine is still a possibility, especially if Russia still has almost unlimited abilities to escalate the war and deliver ultimate violence, as long as the U.S. is also committed to fight the war to the very last Ukrainian body. So what's the second option in Ukraine? The only other solution is diplomacy, even if that comes at a military stalemate. But the U.S. is committed to weaken Russia while using Ukrainians as cannon fodder so we can weaken Russia prior to a negotiated peace, at least allegedly. But what the U.S. should be doing is taking the leads at peace talks and diplomacy. But the likelihood of peace continues to become more and more remote as the fighting continues onward, especially as the combatants entrench themselves on both sides and as the fighting gets more intense and violent with each passing day. The people of Ukraine should have the ultimate power in deciding the terms of peace and diplomacy. It should not be decided by a puppet government of the West, propped up by the American military-industrial complex, or the U.S.-based weapons producers. The people of Ukraine should have the dignity and right to decide their own fate. In this altercation, Russia is the aggressor, led by a kleptomaniac, an autocrat, a harsh dictator, and war criminal, and Vladimir Putin. And the people of Russia have a lot of work to do if they ever hope to democratize and transform their country into a society that is less harsh and less violent. A society that is more open, free, and conducive to human life. But that's not for me to judge. That's for the Russian people to decide. Regardless of what happens in Ukraine or to Putin, Russia is a society held hostage by a powerful class of kleptomaniacs and oligarchs which run the society. But not too dissimilar to American society which is run by so-called corporate elites who are behaving like lunatics and psychopaths hell-bent on extracting every morsel of wealth from a dying planet. Not to mention a class of billionaires which make up a tiny fraction of the 1%. Trump even came from their ranks by cutting out the middleman or the political class to run the government himself. But usually what these billionaires do is buy the government, which dictate the rules for the rest of us, the 99% to follow. However, these people are not called oligarchs in American society, but the similarities between the U.S. and Russian society are very striking. Sometimes you have to even wonder why these two countries are even called enemies. There will be a world which will include Russia after the war in Ukraine is over. So now would be the time to consider Russian reintegration. The way I see it, peace and diplomacy is the preferred option. And it's also the preferred option by the Ukrainian people, who have been used as cannon fodder and victimized by both sides in this proxy war. Peace talks will have to include concessions by both sides, Russia and Ukraine. Russia should also demilitarize on the Ukrainian border and also formally agree to never invade again. It should also be agreed upon that NATO expansion should be halted indefinitely. And frankly, I think NATO should be dissolved. The world would be a much safer place without NATO. As it relates to the highly contested warm water ports, and more specifically the Crimea, there should be a referendum. And the people living there, who are highly sympathetic to Russia and its culture, should be allowed to decide their own fate and vote on future plans, governmental policies, and overall organization of the region. Peace and diplomacy should be the end game, and the sooner the better, because as the war rages on, the prospects for peace lessen, while the likelihood for nuclear war and ultimate annihilation increase. I'd now like to end with a couple of quotes. First, by the radical pacifist A.J. Musty, who said, 
The problem with war is with the victor. He thinks he has just proved that war and violence pay. Who will teach him a lesson? And now a quote from the great philosopher Bertrand Russell, who asked, Shall we put an end to the human race, or shall mankind renounce war? That's going to do it for this episode of Necessary Illusions. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you will pressure the leaders of the world to push for peace and diplomacy in Ukraine, which I see as a much better alternative to World War III and total nuclear annihilation. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. Thanks for listening. No gods, no masters. I'm out. Thank you.